From Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is Friday, October the 23rd, 2020. We have 11 days to go, I believe it is, uh, before the election closes. Uh, I would have said election day a couple of years ago or a few years ago, but uh, these days we're talking about election season more likely. And many, many people have voted. I think I saw a figure 47 million people in, in the United States have voted already in the 2020 election. That's uh, an amazing figure, obviously in, influenced by folks who want to vote early, get it done, uh, and uh, avoid standing in line in the, on election day and perhaps uh, contracting the uh, coronavirus. So uh, here we are. Uh, we're going to be uh, visiting with uh, Matt Dickinson this whole first hour of the Dave Graham Show this morning on WDEV. Uh, he's a political science professor at Middlebury College, and uh, we're going to talk about last night's debate and uh, maybe that Hunter Biden story that Fox News keeps trying to bring to the center of Americans' attention. And uh, the... Um, a few other whatever whatever else is going on campaign wise and politically here in the uh, waning days of this 2020 election campaign season the um uh, second hour of the program today we're going to be visiting with Chris Viennes. He is the chair of the Waterbury Select Board. He's running as an independent for the Vermont House of Representatives. And he said uh, some, some things on, uh, on a candidate's forum aired on WDEV earlier this week, uh, which really have generated quite a bit of controversy. Mr. Viennes suggested uh, segregating Vermont's police departments so that when there were calls involving uh, uh, people of color, m- m- members of minority communities, that uh, the departments could deploy minority officers to go out and deal with those folks, and then he seemed to think that that would re- remove the uh, any race issues from uh, interactions between police and uh, citizens. Uh, this got a lot of pushback from uh, Tom Stevens, and uh, the incumbent Democrat House member uh, who also spoke at the forum. Uh, uh, Stevens later made some comments uh, indicating he thought the ideas were were uh, racist and culturally insensitive, and there's been a lot of chatter on, on uh, online this week around the community uh, related to these comments by Mr. Viennes. He's going to uh, join us in the second hour of the program, as is uh, Susanna Davis. Uh, she is the uh, executive director of racial equity uh, for the state of Vermont, and uh, we're going to uh, ask her to share her thoughts about this idea as well. So it should be an interesting second hour of the Dave Graham Show this morning. Let's uh, start right off. I believe uh, Matt Dickinson is on the phone with us this morning. Good morning, Matt. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Dave. Good morning. Good morning. I'm sure you watched the debate last night. That's an occupational hazard, I gather. And uh, uh, what did you think? Well, I thought it was much more civilized. If you looked into debates to find out what the candidates are thinking and what they're running on, I thought this was a far more informative <clears throat> debate than the first one. So um, in that respect alone, I thought it was an improvement. Yeah, I saw um, uh, lots of kudos directed to the uh, debate moderator and uh, the um, Kristen Walker of NBC News uh, was in the chair, and uh, she actually really uh, uh, came off quite well, I thought. But maybe the winner of the debate was actually whoever was pushing the mute button. <laughs> right, although because... I did hear that the, it was more like a nuclear weapon. It was a, the deterrence effect was a, a bigger impact. I don't know if it was actually used. Yeah, I, I I don't know either. Actually, a mutually assured uh, silence. I'm not. I don't know exactly what, what the ter- proper term would be, but uh, <clears throat> that's a um, that that seemed to be a 
in terms of getting, or do you think it's more a matter of, you know, President Trump decided that last approach didn't really work, it didn't settle well with people at all, uh, maybe he'll try something different? I think it was a little of both. Um, I certainly, the, the possibility of getting muted was there, but it sent a broader signal that um, people want to hear what you have to say, not talk over each other. And I think Trump's advisors probably made this clear, this is your last chance. Um, to make an impression. This is one of the, the last events that's going to have a wide viewership, so don't blow it. Do you think that, uh, do you think that the debate uh, changed anything about the trajectory of this election uh, contest? Probably not. Um, as you know, you know, close to 50 million votes in, um, those who are, haven't voted yet generally are relatively apathetic about politics. Um, they don't pay that much attention. They're probably not watching a debate. Um, you know, it, historically, debates um, have a, a very small impact on um, polling, maybe 1% to 2%. Um, and the other thing we know is uh, typically races tighten in the last two weeks. So um, Donald Trump is probably going to edge a little bit closer in overall national polling, um, but I don't know if that's anything to do with the debate. Having said that, um, he didn't hurt himself, and uh, that's probably you got to take it as, as a positive if you're a Trump supporter. Did uh, Joe Biden help or hurt himself? Well, I mean, there's always the whispering campaign that um, Joe Biden is slipping mentally, cognitively. And again, um, I understand critics say this is a low bar, but he showed no evidence of that last night. So, yeah, I thought he helped himself. He made a couple of statements that will leak out in Trump advertising that maybe he wants back. But overall, uh, I thought he did very well. And uh, certainly there's no reason for anybody who's supporting him to doubt that support. Yeah, I, I, in terms of this uh, this whispering campaign, as you describe it about uh, about Joe Biden's you know mental capacity or or, or cognition or whatever, um, I, I just I don't know why that applies more uh, strongly to him than to uh, you know a president who invented the word kofefe. Uh, I, I mean, why 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 do you think is it just because it's it's a finger being pointed by by Trump and his people? Uh, yes. I think it's largely uh, uh, something that's driven by right-wing media, social media. Um, I mean, obviously, those who have followed Biden's career know that it, even at his top of his game, he wasn't the most verbally um, dexterous individual. Uh, and yeah. Part of that, of course, is, you know, he has a, a stuttering issue, and he has mechanisms to sort of prevent that from happening. And he is mm -hmm. old. He will be the oldest president to take office. So, you know, there's a perfect storm of circumstantial factors. But the proof in the pudding is how does he handle himself on the debate stage? And I think he's clearly showed that he's um, up to whatever requirements we have for a president. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Donald Trump is just a couple of years younger than uh, than Joe Biden. And, and I mean, am, am I off the, off the mark here when I say that uh, by my lights, I don't, I don't, I don't see any daylight uh, on this issue between the two of them. Uh, frankly, you know, I just sort of think uh, they are both prone to um, saying things that you kind of go, "What?" <laughs> yeah, uh, I think as issues go that are going to determine this election, this one is not a major one. Yeah, I, I thought it might be back in you know sort of early on because I mean, obviously there was more than a whisper; there was a big chatter going on. During say the Democratic primaries about how Joe Biden was was old and doddering and and losing it or whatever, 
Um, and it seems as though, I mean, I've actually been surprised given that, that, you know, it's always a game of expectations, but given those expectations, I've been surprised at how cogent he's been, really, because, I mean, yeah, unless it was all just an exaggeration from the get-go, uh, do, do you have any sense of that? Well, I think in the generation, uh, the uh, Democratic nominating committee is a generational issue, and the, the attacks on the, uh, the whispering campaign about Joe's age had as much to do with uh, younger Democrats, particularly progressives, saying, you know, this is the same old, same old. We've, we've trotted this white male uh, guy out before. It's yeah. time for a new direction. I think that had more to do with the sort of the whispering campaign about his age than Democrats accusing him of flipping cognitively. Yeah, man, I do think that uh, certainly by 2024, Democrats are going to have to come up with somebody younger. <laughs> it's not going to be a not going to be a, uh, a you know ping pong match anymore between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders or whatever. So um, the uh, well, in, it, let's let's go to a couple of the uh, a couple of the issues that uh, that the candidates uh, raised or tried to raise last night. Uh, how effective was President Trump in? Uh, raising an alarm about uh, Hunter Biden and his various foreign business dealings and so on. I just don't think that went anywhere. Um, and again, I agree with you that Kristen Welker did a generally good job as a moderator, but as you know, as a journalist, she could have just ended this discussion with one quick question to Biden. When it is, did you ever take a meeting with this um, advisor to Burisma? Yes or no? And it didn't quite get there. Having said that, I, I have do not believe this issue has legs anyway. Um, it's just not something that a lot of people understand the, you know, the dealings with. And I thought last night Joe Biden was very effective at turning this around and saying, you want to talk about families benefiting from, um, you know, foreign investment. Um, what about your deals with Russia and your family's deal with China? So at best, I thought it was a wash. It had the potential. And it still is leaking out on right-wing media. Um, there's all sorts of um, stories about additional evidence. But in terms of last night's debate, I just thought it fell flat. Yeah, it, ne- it never really gained any traction or, or, or so, sort of uh, coalesced into uh, anything people were going to remember and take away from it. Uh, it's just this kind of general noise out there, it almost seems. Um, and, and, uh, you know, the, the other thing about this is, uh, let, let's talk about the Hunter Biden story for a couple of minutes because I find it really interesting that, um, that Fox News and the New York Post and, uh, you know, a lot of the right wing media are very, very excited about this story. Um, and this, this is really pointing a finger at, uh, at this son of, uh, of, of the Democratic nominee. Who has had a pretty spotty life uh, so far? Uh, you know, he's allegedly had some problems with drugs, and he has uh, uh, been involved in, in in some of these business deals. He, and, and you know, in an ideal world, uh, you really don't want to don't want to see the son of a vice president get a job, a uh, fifty thousand dollar a month job for which he is. Uh, apparently completely unqualified, but then you have somebody whose background, uh, in the case of Ivanka Trump, was designing verses, become a senior White House advisor. And, uh, you know, I don't know whether designing purses is that great a qualification for becoming a senior White House advisor. What do you think? Well, I, you know, I'm not going to get into the details of, uh, you know, the family business on either side, except to say, this is, I think, Joe Biden's 
effective counter um, to the effort to attack him via Hunter. And you are quite right. I think people who are not partisans on either side think the Hunter Biden appointment uh, smelled a little bit. And it was pretty obvious why he got the appointment. Um, having said that, no laws were broken. Um, there's a difference between sort of um, what you might call an ethically shady deal versus one that is um, illegal. And the Trump campaign, um, as you point out, has their own um, skeletons in the closet with the family business. And they're certainly um, susceptible to the same type of attacks regarding favoritism towards family members. I just don't think this is what's going to drive the election in the end. It's one of these things where both sides are seeking this October surprise, in this case, the Republicans desperately, and I just don't think it's going anywhere. Yeah, and, and the, I guess the one last thing about the about this Hunter Biden scandal is that um, basically the, it, it seems as though most, I mean, the best they've come up with, <laughs> this meaning the New York Post and Fox News, et cetera, so far has been sort of corruption once removed, meaning uh, separated by a generation from the principle. Um, and in the case of uh, President Trump, he got up at a rally in, in Prescott, Arizona, earlier this week, and he um, talked about calling the head of Exxon and uh, basically telling this person, by the way, Exxon denies this ever happened, but uh, Trump talked about calling the head of Exxon and, and telling this person that uh, your company could get a couple permits you're seeking, uh, and boy, would I love a $25 million contribution to my campaign. I think that's called soliciting a bribe. <laughs> and that's not by the son of the nominee. That is by the nominee. Uh, now, people can say, oh, well, Trump made it clear he was speaking hypothetically, or somebody I saw online saying, he was joking, but, you know, I'm, I, it, it seems a lot with this guy that there's a thin line between uh, joking and, uh, you know, sometimes he, he was joking because he gets called out on something later. Um, what, do you, what do you make of that? Well, it is true that when you attend his rallies, and I went to several of them, he will say things in order to get a rise from the crowd, and there's sort of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge, listen to what I say now, and the crowd will and um, he feeds off that, they feed off him. So I tend not to, you know, it's an oft-repeated quote, but I think it's very apt, but Selena Zito, um, you know, the press takes him literally but not seriously. His supporters take him seriously but not literally. And I generally mm -hmm. apply that to anything he says at a campaign rally. However, last night you saw him try to use that argument that, you know, I'm in a position where I could be, self-funding my campaign, or not self-funding, but funding it just by soliciting contributions from ExxonMobil and, and trying to use that against Joe Biden. Um, and again, uh, I don't think that was effective, but it, it did do something, Dave, that I thought was interesting, which is he tried to revert to being the outsider, the non-politician last night in the debate, even though he's been president for three and a half years, yeah. uh, and portray... Uh, Biden as the establishment candidate and tried to make this uh, presidential election a referendum on Biden's eight years as vice president. I don't know if that's going to work, but it was a new twist. As you said, Matt, the uh, the race is likely to tighten at the end, uh, and the national media learned a big lesson about polls back in 2016. Uh, um, 
how uh, how how heavily should Democrats be biting their nails right now? Well, I think it's always a good idea to hope for the best and fear for the worst if you're a Democrat. And mm-hmm. you know, uh, fool me once, shame on me. Uh, you, sorry, fool me twice. So they don't want to reprise in 2016 when the polls underestimated turnout among um, individual white voters in particular with lower education levels and overestimated turnout among uh, people of color, particularly African-Americans. Uh, which is Why won't that happen Obama again? What's different? I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. Which is one reason they brought Barack Obama out there in uh, Pennsylvania. Um, and the, the idea here is to, of course, ensure that African-Americans turn out for Joe. And, and I'm wondering, um, well, first, let me let me actually ask you, how effective will that be? Uh, Joe Biden uh, has taken a, has taken a, some criticism among some quarters in the African-American community, for, particularly for his and, and for, President Trump has tried to use this. Uh, you know, his, his activities on the crime bill uh, back in the 1990s, um, uh, and it, he's been a contributor to the problem of mass incarceration uh, in this country. Um, why should African Americans want to support him? Well, I think there's a, a, a generational difference here. I think older blacks will turn out because he's the Democratic nominee, and they mm-hmm. still have strong attachment to the Democratic Party, the Party of Civil Rights. I, I think you're absolutely right. Younger blacks are not really excited about Joe Biden. Um, and, you know, what you're looking for here with Barack Obama is at the margins, just making sure you don't lose a state by 70,000, you win it by 70,000 votes, which, uh, you know, was the margin between Trump and, and Clinton in 2016. You're hoping yeah. every little bit helps here, and, and that's what Obama is designed to do. Um, should uh, should Kamala Harris be playing a stronger role? Will she in in a place like Pennsylvania? You know, she's an interesting person because as you raise that issue about the mass incarceration, she her reputation among some in the black community as a role as Attorney General in California is somewhat mixed. Um, mm-hmm. She's worked very hard to overcome that. How well she succeeded, I think, is I'm uncertain about. Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting uh, question right there. Um, let's bring in, a, I think we have a couple of uh, listeners on the line. Uh, Jack from Middlebury. Good morning, Jack. Good morning, uh, Professor Dickinson. I noticed last night that uh, Joe Biden made uh, a, uh, quite a statement that he was going, that we're going to give up uh, oil as a source of energy. Uh, is that going to hurt him, particularly in Texas and Oklahoma and especially Pennsylvania? Do you want to take that, Dave? Or? Uh, sure. Go go right ahead. Um, I, the uh, I think the caller was addressing the question to you. And do you think that that this question about or the, the statement about moving away from oil uh, as a source of energy uh, by Joe Biden uh, is going to hurt him in Texas and Oklahoma? Yeah, I thought the statement was unnecessary. It's one of those unforced errors that you hope your candidate doesn't do at the end of the debate. Having said that, um, I don't think it's going to have a huge impact. He tried to rescue himself by saying, I mean, phasing it out over the long term. That's actually going to appeal to environmentalists who have been pushing to wean us away from um, fossil fuels for a long time. Um, I really think most of the states affected by that are red states anyhow. I don't think Texas is really in play. Um, but to the extent that it has any impact on the race, I suspect it's probably not what he wanted to say, um, and it may hurt him at the margins. 
but I suspect this is not going to be a game changer. Yeah, and certainly Oklahoma's. I'm I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jack. Go ahead. Well, it's Pennsylvania too that worries me. It's such a, such a uh, pivotal state. Yeah, that is a key battleground state, and you know, fracking is. Uh, it's an important industry there, and you saw them get in a little back and forth on whether Joe said he was going to ban fracking. Um, and shortly after the debate, um, the Trump campaign showed a series of videos where Biden appears to be saying that uh, at rallies. So, yeah, Jack, I think that's a, you know, it is a concern. Um, I, again, I don't think it'll be decisive, but we shall see. Thank you, Professor. Thanks for the call, Jack. Uh, uh, let me just follow up quickly on that and, and ask, is, is, uh, is fracking a sort of third rail issue in Pennsylvania, though? I mean, it could be uh, folks in Pennsylvania who've been, uh, you know, negatively impacted uh, by the environmental in, uh, impacts of fracking, which tend to be pretty localized. Uh, maybe they would uh, love to see a, a presidential candidate come along and say, let's get rid of fracking. Yeah, I think this came up, too, in the loca- the question by Kristen Walker about minority cop communities living near um, oil refineries and the, the adverse impact of the environment. So, yeah, it cuts both ways. Um, and, you know, you got to parse out the, the overall net impact. I think overall it's probably not a smart move. But, again, at the margins, not a, not a decisive game-changing a statement in, a, you know, an hour-and-a-half debate. This is one moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in just a minute or a minute to go before the debate, let's uh, see if we can bring in Mike from Northfield real quickly. Mike? Uh, I just wanted to mention that uh, Trump has paid way more in taxes to China and Panama and a couple of other countries, or maybe several, uh, than he's ever paid here in America. And that kind of pisses me off. I don't know about you, but I pay more than he does. That's, uh, we'll let uh, Professor Dickinson address that point after the break. Uh, we'll be uh, back after some CBS News. Thanks for the call, Mike. I'm going to put that question to uh, Professor Dickinson uh, just after the, we get back from our uh, news and a couple words from sponsors. So stay with us, folks. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rock and Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. News Radio, WDEV, FM, and AM. Now back to the Dave Graham Show. We are back. My guest is Matt Dickinson. He's a political science professor at Middlebury College. And uh, Professor Dickinson, uh, we had a call from uh, Mike from Northfield just before the break, and he was talking about how he was annoyed by the uh, taxes uh, paid or not paid by President Donald Trump. And uh, he said that uh, it appeared that uh, he was paying more in taxes than, than Trump is or has been. And um, I'm wondering, did that uh, that part of the discussion last night uh, seem to score points with uh, with our, our our caller? But uh, do you think it scored points more broadly with voters? I think the issue has been so uh, well litigated that I doubt it changed the discussion last night. Changed many minds about it, um, but it's an issue that does not help Donald Trump. And the more time you spend defending the fact that 
you did not pay many taxes, if any, uh, much in, in taxes is less time spent attacking Joe Biden. So that's not a good uh, not a good issue for uh, Donald Trump. I don't think it helped him. I mean, his argument uh, about the accountant and prepaying and so forth, um, it just gets to the heart of Biden's response, which is, why don't you just release the taxes and then we'll know. Yeah, you know, I, I guess the uh, the um, the other aspect of this debate, uh, I thought, was that while it was much more civil and actually, uh, you know, frankly, did paint President Trump in a better light than he was than he uh, than shown on him or he shown on himself, I guess, a couple of weeks ago in the first debate. Um, there still was a uh, a lot of stuff said last night that. Uh, doesn't really bear up well to uh, to scrutiny, and uh, the, some of the fact checking that has gone on, or, you know, in the, in the uh, roughly twelve hours since this all was happening, has been um, unfriendly, shall we say, to the president. Not to say that uh, Joe Biden scored a perfect one hundred on getting everything perfectly right, but um, but some of the broad narratives that the president is still operating under. Uh, as the New York Times talks about, you know, they've been, they've been shown time and again to be false, and yet the president still clings to them and, and, and utters them. And, uh, I mean, maybe they have become, you know, this set of alternative facts, as Kelly and Conway used to describe them, that, uh, really have settled in the minds of his supporters. Uh, um, I mean, I'll, just for one example that the Times pointed to also was, um, his comment that, uh, the whole Russia investigation, the Mueller report, and all of that stuff. Uh, quote, I was put through a phony witch hunt. And um, and the Times says, uh, Mr. Trump has repeatedly sought to reinvent the history of investigations into his campaign's con- uh, connections to Russia. He did so again on Thursday, insisting that the special counsel inquiry led by Robert S. Mueller III found, quote, found absolutely no collusion and nothing wrong. The Times says that's not true. After a 22-month investigation, Mr. M- Mr. Mueller issued a 448-page report that detailed numerous contacts between the president's aides and Russians, found that the Trump campaign was aware of and welcomed the Kremlin's operations to sabotage the 2016 election, and also derailed, I'm sorry, and also de- detailed efforts by the president and his advisors to thwart the investigation. Uh, that was the obstruction of justice stuff that came up uh, repeatedly in in Mueller's report. Um, do you think any of this matters, or is that, I mean, that stuff seems so fundamental to the conduct of American elections that I think it should, but do you? Do you think well, it does? I think it's an, it's an issue that's been litigated um, for such a, a, a long time now that I think most minds are made up on this. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, trying to rehash the details and the subtlety between, you know, was there active collusion versus was there an effort to encourage the Russians to provide dirt What's the difference between the two? What constitutes obstruction of justice? I just don't think that that story has legs. I think stories like Trump last night arguing that uh, Biden and his son have benefited from business dealings with Russia and this argument, you got $3.5 million, that's new. And mm-hmm. as far as I can tell, there's no basis for that story. I think he's, you know, he's amplifying uh, an investigation by Ron Johnson that really actually doesn't even make that claim. That might try to tie into some broader themes about corruption, and it's relatively new. But the 
collusion story, I just think that is old news, and people have made their minds up about it, and it's just not going to uh, impact this election at this point. Hmm. Um, let's go to uh, Fred in Newbury. He's on the line. Good morning, Fred. Good morning. Hey, my, my impression is that if, um, if an incumbent president has a black swan event in his first term, uh, and the voters perceive that he didn't do a very good job handling the aftermath, the probability of the president winning re-election is going to be very low. Case in point would be a major hurricane, uh, the possibility of a major flood in the, in the uh, uh, Mississippi Valley uh, that caused a lot of destruction and death. Let's say you guys. Um. Well, of course, uh, you know, I think of I think of Hurricane Katrina. That was in George W. Bush's second term. Um, what uh, What do you think, uh, Matt Dickinson? Is there is there a um, is there a, is is there some history here to support uh, Fred's notion here? I think the issue here is the pandemic. Twenty five minutes mm-hmm. of that debate. The first twenty five minutes was Joe Biden hammering Donald Trump on his handling or mishandling of the pandemic and the impact on the economy. And the best response that um, the president could muster is, well, it would have been worse under you. Nobody knew what we were doing. Quoting Leonard Fauci as a couple of statements he made back in January, uh, that, I don't know if you call that a black swan event comparable to a hurricane, but that is the issue of the campaign. And you cannot run away from it as president. It happened on your watch. It is happening. You cannot change the narrative to pretend 220,000 Americans aren't dead. Um, that, to me, is the central issue of the campaign. I'm, yeah. Um, Fred, what do you think? Yeah, I think I think he's right. I think uh, that uh, the, the, the uh, COVID deal is the major issue. And my contention is COVID was a black swan event, and the president didn't handle it right. And the president is probably not going to win re-election. Um, do you think that the uh, Fred? Do you think that the president's uh, uh, character uh, matters here, um, or do you think it really is just a sort of uh, he's a victim of circumstance? Yeah, I think that I think that is well. That's interesting. We talk, I, okay, when Trump won the election, there was such a, a, a problem called Trump derangement syndrome. So many people hated Trump just because he won the election. I think that has a lot to do with it too. But my best argument is going to be COVID-19 was not handled the way the voters think the president should have handled it. And that's going to be the president's demise. All right. Thanks for the call, Fred. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, uh, let's go to Betty and Barry. Good morning, Betty. Good morning. How are you? Doing well. How are you? Hello. All right. Uh, I agree with Matt there. Uh, I mean, I'm so sick of this Russian thing. I don't want to hear no more about it. I mean, I'm tired of listening to that. On mm-hmm. the other hand, I also am very curious about this uh, thing with Biden and his uh, his son's partner there. I saw that on the news. And they say there's no validity to it, although his partner said he had proof of it. 
which concerns me because, I mean, if this is going on, one should know that. And I think not only that, I think also other stations should be showing this, too. I've only seen it on one station when his partner got up there, Joe, uh, not Joe Biden, but his son Hunter Biden, got up there and spoke about it, and nobody carried it. No, aren't people interested? I think most folks have a right to know that. Whether it's true or not, we don't know for a fact, but I think also it would impairs all these journalists to look at this and see whether it is some validity in it or not. For one thing, voters do have a right to know that. Now, why isn't all the other stations showing this, too? I mean, they're not really journalists if they're not showing the whole picture. To me, if you're showing the whole picture, both sides, I agree. Otherwise, if you show, if you are censoring information out there, we are no better than communist countries that do that. That's my opinion. Betty, let me let me ask you a question about that. You said okay. um, you weren't sure if this stuff you, you weren't sure if this stuff was true or not. We don't do you know think that, for a fact. Do you think that journalists have some duty to check it out and see whether it's true before they uh, before they broadcast it? Yes, I do. I, I well I look at it this way. He was on the air on one of the channels, and he was discussing that he had the proof that Joe Biden was involved in that. Shouldn't they check that out? I I would I would say that it's it's worth checking out. But whether you go to air with it or you go to or you go to in other words, do you do you publish or do you broadcast a story? Uh, after you know, in checking, I, I worked as a reporter for quite a number of years, yeah. and checking something out is a is a lot different from actually uh, putting it out in front of the public. You have to not only check it out, but then you have to find that it's true in order in order hand, to. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. On the other hand, I've seen other things go on the air on CNN and MSNBC that were mm-hmm. not really checked out either. So there you go. I mean, give me an example. If, I cannot. There's so many of them. Who knows? Yeah, I didn't I mean, think you, you could. You lose track of it after a while. Uh huh. Okay. You lose track. Betty, of I gotta go. Thank you for the call. Uh, that's uh, okay. interesting. No problem. Have a nice day. You too, uh, Matt. I, I mean, what do you think about this? Am, uh, am I off the track here or something? But uh, you know, I just sort of feel like uh, here we have this this basket of information coming in uh, from Rudy Giuliani. Uh, U.S. intelligence is, was telling the White House that, uh, by the way, Russian intelligence is feeding stuff to Rudy Giuliani. Uh, he's going to uh, try to use this stuff, uh, you know, in his own way, uh, et cetera. Um, I mean, what is the duty of, of the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, uh, et cetera, to run with this story just because somebody's saying it? What a great question. I mean, um, and it also ties into the Comey letter in 2016, and I believe the media feels they got burned on that one by reporting that, um, and that they do not want to put their finger on the scales here, but if they don't report on an allegation by Hunter Biden's former partner, Anthony Bobulinski, that Biden consulted his father about a planned venture with this Chinese oil company, are they really doing their due diligence? I mean, Betty raises a good point here. Uh, you're a journalist, and you know the economic pressures, too. Uh, and if they don't run with it, somebody else might. Um, so how do you both present the – I think there's a legitimate story here, uh, legitimate in the sense that good journalists should be 
investigating this, but how do you do it in a way without giving credence to Rudy Giuliani's unsupported allegations that this is fact? Um, that's the difficulty in this this hothouse media environment where the news cycle runs 24-7, and you, you don't have the time um, to really investigate a lot of these because your competitors are just running with these stories on cable news. I think it's a really difficult job for journalists today. Yeah, and and I, um, I mean, I, I do think that that the, you know, I mean, I could just think of uh, many many examples where people would come to me, and I was just a state reporter for the AP. Okay, I wasn't in Washington covering the national political scene, but I remember many times when when people would come to me, you know, just step up to me in a state house a hallway or something, and did you hear this dirt about so and so, and. Um, and and I would I might inquire about it. I might ask around and see whether anybody else is has, or I would say to the person, you know, do you have any documentary evidence you can show me? Do you have any any uh, any way to really kind of prove the case here? Um, and 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 meanwhile, a partisan might come up to me and say, why aren't you running with that story? I, I understand that. You know, this person gave it to you yesterday, and I, did, I haven't seen it. And, and I would say, well, yeah, this is going to take some checking out. Uh, it's going to, uh, and also, you know, the first attempts I've made at checking it out uh, present some really contradictory stuff, um, and so on. And so, I, I, th- I think just some guy popping out of the woodwork named Bobolinsky uh, making an allegation is is that's a start, but it doesn't put me on the air yet by any means and I, I understand there's very few very little time left between now and election day but on the other hand uh, I think that almost heightens the importance of trying to get it right so um, no I, I I'm I guess I'm a conservative <laughs> in terms of being careful about about what I'm going to spout out on the on the public airwaves or uh, or in prints and uh, uh, and that's because and I and I think a lot of the national media, frankly, are and that's why when when you know the New York Times comes out with a blockbuster story on Trump's taxes, they have been investigating that for a couple of years, not a couple of days. So um, that's a, that's a very important consideration here, Matt Dickinson. I'm wondering if you th- if you think that uh, if you are predicting anything about the last 11 days of the campaign here, what do you think the strategies will be? Uh, let's start with President Trump. Uh, what what does what does he need, or what is he likely to do in these closing days? I think he telegraphed a little bit of it last night in the debate. He's going to focus on the economic recovery. There are signs the economy's coming back. Uh, he's going to continue to blame the China flu for the economic dislocation, and he's going to argue we can't risk going back to democratic rule. For Biden's sake, I think he is going to uh, hammer away at the mishandling of the coronavirus. That's the central theme of the... uh, He's going to try to make no unforced errors. He's going to um, try to limit his exposure um, to questions and just keep Trump's record on coronavirus front and center of the debate. Um, on the on the economy for the president, uh, uh, I mean, all all the numbers and the real indicators seem to. I mean, the picture I get. Uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but uh, is is that the economy was on a track of uh, of uh, long term slow recovery uh, under the Obama ed- Biden administration? Uh, and then uh, Trump took over in uh, January of 17, and basically that recovery. 
uh, continued um, and didn't really blink at the change in administration, from what I can tell. Do you think that's about right, or do you think that that uh, that he did something that the President Trump did something that really uh, changed that trajectory and, and improved it even? Well, I think you're absolutely right. The trajectory began under the Obama administration, coming out of that housing-induced recession, and it continued under Trump. I think it's a reminder that we overestimate the impact presidents have on the economy. Well, you know, in a trillion-dollar economy, decisions made on fiscal spending uh, is really at exercises and influence at the margins. Having said that, you know, voters reward or punish the current president for economic conditions, and so Trump is going to try to get rewarded here, and Biden's going to say... Yep. You don't deserve to be rewarded. Uh, Joe Biden, what does he need to do in the last uh, 11 days? Well, I think, um, you know, I hinted a little bit. I, I think he doesn't have to do much. Stay out of the way. Don't uh, <laughs> say you're going to ban oil drilling uh, and let this story be about Trump um, as much as possible to remind people um, about the reality of what we're living in. Look out the doors. Your kid can't go to school. Um, why is that? Um, you're friends has lost their small business. Why is that? That's pretty much what Joe Biden has to do. Yeah, it uh, it, it really does uh, seem that uh, those are the paths, and we'll see where they where they end up. It's going to be uh, going to be a, a tense and exciting couple of weeks, I do suspect. So let's see. Anyway, hey, Matt Dickinson, uh, Middlebury College political science professor. There, uh, you've been a uh, stalwart guest here lately on the Dave Graham Show. I really appreciate your contributions. Uh, thank you so much for joining me again today. Always great to be with you, Dave. I appreciate it. And uh, we are going to go to and do a top-of-the-hour break for some CBS News. We'll be talking to Bob Nay on the other side. And then Chris Viennes, Waterbury Select, Select Board Chair, who made some controversial comments this week, will be given a chance to elaborate. We'll be back in our, with our second hour in just a few minutes, folks. Stay with us. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Picture Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. Now back to the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. Thanks for staying with us into the second hour of our program this morning on this uh, October the 23rd. It's a Friday morning, and uh, we usually at around this time get Bob Nay on the phone. He is our regular Friday national correspondent. After the mid-show break, we like to bring in someone from outside of Vermont to tell us what's going on in the rest of the world and... uh, I'm sure Bob will have some thoughts to share, not only about the latest uh, coronavirus news, but uh, he will, uh, I'm sure, have some thoughts about last night's debate. It's, uh, it was a um, much better, I, I think, on both sides. I credit uh, both the president uh, for being a lot calmer than he was in the first debate, and uh, I credit Joe Biden for, uh, you know, a steady and reasonable performance. Um, the fact-checkers seem to indicate that uh, uh, the president strayed from the facts quite a bit more often than Mr. Biden did. Neither one scored 100 on the truthfulness scale, but it uh, uh, looks like uh, the fact-checkers that I've been looking at this morning seem to indicate that uh, 
uh, Vice President Biden, former Vice President Biden, did that uh, more uh, scored higher. I mean, there wasn't any actual total numerical total here, but the general thing was that he uh, tried to stick to the stick to the facts uh, while the president was. Uh, uh, often straying off into alternative facts or something like that. But um, Bob Day uh, is, uh, well, we was with Talk Media News for a long time, and, and then uh, they sort of uh, went away, And uh, uh, but now he is uh, freelancing, and he is uh, our regular Friday morning uh, commentator here on the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM, and um, looking forward to uh, his checking in with us, which I expect he'll do any any. Uh, any minute now, and um, we have, uh, I think it's a really good, uh, and I'm happy to say uh, that WDEV is able to take advantage of his work as well as that uh, during the rest of the week we have uh, frequent appearances by CBS News correspondents. Of course, WDEV now subscribes to the CBS News that you hear at the tops and bottoms of our hours, and uh uh, and we're very happy about that, in part because I get to pick the brains of uh, people who are covering things like uh, the Senate uh, hearings on the Amy Coney Barrett uh, Supreme Court nomination and other national news events. They're right in the room and in the front, and they are uh, they are able to help us understand what's going on out there. I believe uh, Bob Nay joins us now, and uh, Bob, good morning. Thank you for joining me. Hey, good morning, Dave. Is there any uh, any news on the coronavirus front that anybody could describe as uh, uh, trending upward toward the positive? Actually, there is. There's a little bit of news, at least, and that is that the um, – uh, I can't remember which pharmaceutical company, so I apologize for that, but uh, they used uh, Remdivsar – I hope I'm saying that right – on the president is what I think was used. Uh, I've got a lot of uncertainties today, but anyway, the good news mm-hmm. is that the FDA has approved that, and that is one of the first drugs that they have approved, uh, you know, to be used, and it's called Remdesivir. Remdesivir. Yeah, I, I've heard it said Remdesivir or something like that. Also, remdesivir. I don't know. I'm going to go with you. <laughs> Thank you, Remdesivir. <laughs> Say, you saved me today. I'll be more articulate on the debate, but. But anyway, that has been approved as a antiviral treatment, and it showed what they're saying is modest results. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, I, I think that uh, over time you would expect that uh, all the scientists working on this out there would be coming up eventually. You know, they, they experiment. They try things. Uh, a doesn't work. B doesn't work. C doesn't work. D works a tiny bit. E works so slightly better. You know how it goes. And then eventually... Uh, that's how an awful lot of uh, uh, really important discoveries are made in uh, in the in the development of new new drugs, new pharmaceutical, right. uh, new medicines. Uh, and uh, I mean, I I think it's kind of an awesome process. It's really it really is the uh, uh, the human endeavor in a in a bottle, you know. So um, credit the credit to those folks. I'm sorry. And I'm I'm and it's for the world, you know, the benefit of the world. This whole endeavor. Yeah. And, I did meet with a doctor um, last Sunday who really gave a very fascinating breakdown of the ins and outs of this, you know, COVID. And he's not a national expert, but he surely, you know, uh, has a lot of insight to it. He actually had a COVID case in his office of one of the employees, so they shut down for two days. But um, it was very interesting of the treatment and what it does and if you have 
diabetes, it's different. If you have asthmatic issues, it's a bit different. So it's sort of stop and go on it and a wide variety of things that uh, that they try. Yeah, I, I, I suspect that um, that we're not going to have a magic bullet cure anytime soon. Right. Eventually what's going to happen is um, the... There will be, a, a, you know, a variety of therapies out there that, which, as you say, will apply. Will be some will be better with certain types of patients, and some will be better with others. And um, and what will happen is that the numbers will come down. The numbers of people who get seriously ill, um, and uh, it'll be more a matter of management than than curing the thing. But uh, but you know, eventually it will be pretty well managed and. Uh, uh, and we'll start to uh, read the paper in the morning without seeing headlines about the coronavirus. Right. That's right. that's the, uh, exactly. the um, uh, and you know I, I in the meantime you know we have this uh, I'm seeing the phrase third surge uh, being used applying especially to states in the uh, in the northern Midwest now that seem to be having really high numbers of uh, new coronavirus cases um, and. The it, it's that's a very tough thing in the last days before this election uh, for President Trump. I mean, he earlier on was talking about how we might have a vaccine, and the, and the I think he imagined sort of a magic bullet cure uh, by election day, and he could go out. You know, that would be the October surprise, maybe. Um, that's looking dim, isn't it? Well, right, and now I mean, right now the pandemic is getting worse, and I think that's with a caveat. Uh, you know, we're passing 212,000 deaths, and uh, it's, it's getting worse, and especially because winter's coming and people are more confined in s- smaller spaces for a long period of time uh, in homes, and that, that's what they say actually would kind of hurt, you know. Uh, you, you, you're out somewhere, you get a hold of it, and you go into a house. Um, now, the on the good news side of it, the death rate is not increasing now the other bad news side of it though the hospitalization rate you know goes up um, mm-hmm. the death rate stays about where it's at but the hospitalization rate goes up and then you've got resources that will be tasked and honestly Dave I think it depends on the area you're talking about Newark Ohio Licking hospital was practically empty there were you know we had 14 people total of which uh, you know, 11 of them were in a nursing home, the same place. So there wasn't an overutilization of bed space. But you take New York City, obviously, in New York State, it was a different world. Yeah, that is uh, that's very true. Um, so, Bob, we, we got to talk about the debate last night a little bit. What did you think? Well, a um, couple of interesting things. One thing that jumped right out at me, and I'm, I'm just cutting to one point first before the generic <laughs> what do I think about it, but it was very fascinating having served in Congress. I was sitting there, and uh, I was watching it with some friends. I'm like, surely the president's going to just counter what Biden said, and he didn't, uh, maybe because he doesn't know the history of it or, you know, is not a detail guy, but at one point in time, Biden said, well, you know, when Obama was president, we didn't we didn't have the Congress. Well, they did. <laughs> they had it for two years, uh, the House and the Senate, and they had uh, 60 votes, you know, so they, they had it. Um, but, you know, Trump didn't seize on that whatsoever because he could have said, well, wait a minute, yeah, you had it. You just couldn't do anything, which is, you know, debatable. The Senate's a tough place to do things. But I just, that jumped out at me right away, uh, you know, 
because, uh, like I said, I don't think Trump knows a lot of the details that have happened historically. But overall, uh, look, Trump was much more contained last night. The president was. Uh, he didn't, you know, uh, interrupt, you know, as before. He was more reserved and um, I think probably uh, ended up uh, not making the closing statement that Biden did. Biden's closing statement was was very, very powerful. I don't think, honestly, Dave, that either candidate provided, at least for me, uh, much comfort on COVID. I, I really just don't think so. One said, you know, one thing, and then the other seemed to mimic what they both would have done. Uh, so I don't, I don't think uh, that was a, a great thing. And it was also interesting. Trump's probably the wealthiest person to hold the presidency, but he really looked tried to make it look like that Joe Biden is the guy who got rich from public service, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, what he did. Always makes me cringe when the president compares himself to Lincoln. It's a personal note, and he he did it. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, but the other, the one thing that stuck out, uh, too, you know, Trump made some points about, uh, uh, did you start the cages? Answer that. Didn't you start the cages? And Biden and Obama administration are basically uh, have some weak points about immigration. They did deport more people than in recent modern history, et cetera. Um, so I think Biden's been able to kind of cherry pick. If it was successful, he was VP. If it wasn't successful, hey, I'm not the president yet. You know, so on some of that, uh, Trump um, did what Trump does. You know, just throws out some statistics that are going to be obviously fact checked today. Bottom line is that there was no huge gaffe by Biden, and Trump behaved himself much more, so I'm not sure last night changed much. Yeah. Um, Hey, uh, I can ask you about this uh, Hunter Biden story, which is uh, continually being being, uh, flogged by... uh, you know, Fox News and, and Breitbart and, and uh, the other right wing, New York Post, the other right wing media. Um, do you think that that is likely to uh, to really blow up in the next week, which it would have to do to have an impact on the election? You know, I thought a lot about this. Um, you know, the forensic evidence of is this his laptop where, you know, they have the forensic evidence. Uh, that might be a different story. Um you know, the FBI never comments either way on certain things. You know, they don't mm-hmm. while they're looking at them. So they could have it. They, they, I guess they have a laptop in possession. I don't think at this point in time it will. Now, the last election, there is no doubt in my mind that James Comey, the director of the FBI, had a huge impact. Not the Russians, but James Comey had a huge impact on Hillary Clinton's election. Now, if mm-hmm. you've got the Justice Department or the FBI, head of the FBI coming out and saying, you know, we're going through the laptop, just like Comey did with Anthony Weiner's laptop, and and then all of a sudden saying, well, we're going to clear it three days before the election, which is what Comey did, then that would have an effect. I don't think you're going to see that. So this isn't comparable to what happened last time when Comey injected himself, in my opinion, at least, into the election. Yeah, wow. Um, that certainly was a curveball right at the end there. And, uh, right. We'll see, and I don't think see any... this time. And, and, and what are your current thoughts? Last thing, when, your, your current thoughts on the overall conduct of the election? I mean, we've seen a couple of attempts to... By I guess Iran and Russia to do some weird things in terms of getting uh, 
you know, real disinformation in front of voters and uh, et cetera. Um, do, you, do you think that this election is going to uh, going to be carried off uh, reasonably well, or are you really worried? I'm not really worried, but I don't think it's going to be reasonably well. I do not think this election is going to be decided election night. I really don't. I think mm-hmm. uh, it's going to take some time. And if you want to, if you want a correct election, hey, it takes it takes some time. Sometimes you just can't do it all election night. So I'm not horribly worried, but I think there's going to be a lot of people saying, "Oh, you see, uh, they cheated," or "You see, they cheated." The other side. Um, yeah. There's been a lot of bad feelings about the integrity of the election and, you know, the mail-in ballots, et cetera. So, look, more people are voting than ever before pre-voting because I think they're worried about that. Can I also say one thing about this Iran-Russia story? I, I am so suspicious of this story, I can't tell you how suspicious I am of it, of the intel mm. saying that, that Iran is is doing this in particular uh, to, you know, basically imply to help Joe Biden. I am very suspicious of this story. I'm not saying they fabricated it, but let's face it, with U.S. intel from the time Iran had its revolution through weapons of mass destruction, (laughs) we should learn to question U.S. intel. Uh, yeah, I guess that's, that's a, uh, that is a good lesson to learn eventually, so maybe this will be the week. Right. right. <laughs> Bob, Bob Nay, i got to get, but I thank you very much for joining us Thanks. this morning, and uh, let's do it again next Friday, shall we? Yes, sir. Thank you, Dave. All right, have a good weekend. WDEV had a candidate forum on Monday between the four candidates for the Washington uh, Lemoyne, or Washington uh, Chittenden Senate, uh, House District. I'm going to get this right eventually. The, and the, the Chris Viennes, uh, Waterbury Select Board Chair, is an independent candidate in that uh, in that election. Two incumbents, both Democrats, uh, Tom Stevens and uh, Teresa Wood, were present as as uh, was a Republican candidate as well. And uh, uh, the four of them were exchanging various ideas under questioning by uh, Rick Sengary of WDEV, Lisa Scalotti of the Waterbury Roundabout, and um, there was a question about how to. Uh, make Vermont a more welcoming place for racial minorities. And uh, Chris Viennes, the independent candidate, um, answered the question by, in, by, in part by saying that he would suggest that police departments in Vermont be segregated so that if a call came in involving uh, minority citizens who were having some uh, issue going on that might uh, necessitate police attention, that... Um, the uh, police department would send a minority officer, uh, an officer of color, out to the scene to uh, deal with whatever was happening. And um, this was a, uh, a, a certainly uh, raised a lot of eyebrows, at, I think, at, right at the debate, uh, in, as the debate was going on. And then afterward, uh, there were n- numerous comments uh, really uh, quite uh, dismissive of the idea and uh, upset that um, Mr. Viennes had wanted to go in this direction. Uh, it struck me, though, that uh, the conversation really so far has been pretty brief and truncated, and I thought uh, sometimes uh, when an idea like this comes up, uh, it deserves a little more uh, a little more sunlight, and uh, if there are problems with it, uh, maybe those will expose themselves as it gets further discussion. And so we're going to try uh, some uh, further discussion today. Uh, Chris Viennes is going to be uh, 
my guest on the Dave Graham Show here on WDEV for the remaining uh, 45 minutes or so. And uh, uh, Susanna uh, Davis, the State Executive Director of Racial Equity, will be joining us uh, just after the 10.30 break. Uh, she, uh, uh, I, I invited both uh, Ms. Davis and uh, Mr. Vienz on the program for the full 45 minutes. Uh, she had a scheduling issue, which uh, was uh, un- she was unable to make the fr- first 15 minutes, but we'll invite her in just after the bottom of the hour break. Uh, I also invited uh, Tom Stevens, incumbent Democrat representative, who made uh, some very critical comments about Mr. Vienz's uh, statements uh, in a published uh, article I saw in seven days. Uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Stevens called the the remarks uh, racially, or rather culturally insensitive, and um, said uh, it is... uh, there's a racist idea behind that that is part of the systemic racism that exists in this state and in this country. So we, uh, unfortunately, Mr. Stevens uh, working uh, this morning and was unable to join us, but I wanted to, to uh, just extend, I, I did extend an invitation to him to be on the show, uh, unable to be with us, but we'll have uh, we'll have Mr. Viennes and uh, Susanna Davis uh, from uh, the governor's office, the state's new executive director of uh, racial equity. Uh, actually, by new I mean that office has existed about 17 months, and uh, uh, she has held it uh, since I believe it was July of uh, 2019. And so, let's uh, let's bring uh, Chris Viennes onto our air this morning. I believe he joins us on the telephone. Uh, good morning, Chris. Thanks for being with us. Hi. Good morning, Dave. Uh, can you hear me okay? I can hear you just fine. Thanks. Uh, okay. So uh, your, your remark uh, the other day that, uh, that Vermont uh, uh, might want to think about having, uh, I guess, different police officers uh, based on color respond to uh, different events going on in their communities. Um, had you been thinking about this for a while, and uh, or, did, or was it something that just kind of came to you when you decided to, uh, to uh, you know, sort of speak uh, right off the top of your head about it? Yeah. Uh, I want to thank you, number one, for contacting me and having me on this morning. Um, mm-hmm. It's been difficult for my family um, since since uh, this whole debate. Um if you, if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of back up a little bit um, and just say first that, um, you know, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. Um, and uh, whenever somebody decides to step up as an elected official these days, uh, it's really, you're really putting yourself at risk. Um, because once you become an elected official, you get put on a pedestal, and you're expected to be perfect. Um, and it's unfortunate. I would hope that society would would realize there's no such thing. Um, part of um, my weakness is being able to react quickly to questions when you know you're up against the clock. And um, quite honestly. Part of my other weakness is um, I almost, well, I left home at 17, had uh, my best friend's parents take me in because they were afraid that I was going to drop out of school. Um, I didn't focus on grammar and things like that in school because I felt I had no purpose for it when I got out of school. So consequently, um, you know, 
I don't carry a dictionary around the back pocket, and uh, some of these words that I use sometimes over time, you know, I think they mean something and they don't. And that's where I made the snafu the other day under pressure. Uh, I used the word segregate when I was trying to say was create a separate uh, part of our police department that might be of minority um, that could address these issues that calls that come in that are minority-related minority and maybe help defuse part of the problem that this country is going through. Um, you know, looking looking for hope and, and ideas that might help address, you know, the escalating problems that we're having with with um, our structure in, in our in our lives. Um, right now, you know, if we continue down this path, we're not going to have any structure left. We're going to only have chaos, you know, and uh, I kind of relate it to we'll be back in, in Dodge City here if, if things keep going the way they are. And, uh, you know, Matt Dillon's not around anymore. He's not going to be here to, to clean up the mess. So it's up to us people to step forward. And, yeah, I apologize for using segregation because I was really under the assumption that it meant, you know, bring together or include a different portion of or you know what I mean um, it was truly a mistake um, and that's all it was the, uh, the problem is, but the problem is uh, social media has gotten a hold of it and it's been a shark frenzy since um, now I'm considered a racist <laughs> which uh, there's not a racist bone in my body um, and my goal was to help not only the people that the police officers are responding to, but also help the police officers. Um, because maybe minority police officers can better relate to the minority issues that they're responding to and defuse the problem easier without people getting killed, without people getting hurt on both sides of the line. Uh, I know okay. it's a little radical and everything, but I haven't heard anything... That's any better at this point to try to help defuse the problem. Yeah, well, we we can talk more after a bottom of the hour break with some CBS news that we need to go to in just a moment. But uh, very briefly, I, w I would start with. Uh, uh, well, actually, I've, I'm here in the queue that uh, we uh, maybe uh, should save the uh, uh, balance of this conversation for the other side of the break. Uh, let's hear a CBS News a couple words from our sponsors. Uh, Chris Fiennes is my guest, uh, and we'll be joined by uh, Susanna Davis, the uh, Executive Director of Racial Equity for the State of Vermont, just after the break as well. And we're going to continue to talk about this idea that uh, Mr. Fiennes is proposing to have uh, segregated police officers with uh, white officers responding to calls uh, involving white people and uh, officers of color responding to calls other calls <laughs> let's uh, let's go to uh, bottom of the hour break uh, we'll be back very shortly folks exciting things are happening in Warren Village the picture in and Warren store are under new management upgrades and improvements are in the works maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties we are open while practicing all CDC protocols Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. News Radio, WDEV, FM, and AM. Now back to the Dave Graham Show. 
My guest is Chris Vienza, Waterbury Select Board Chair, independent candidate for the Vermont House and proposer of, a, of an idea in which, which he says uh, would result in the uh, in police departments deploying uh, uh, black officers to uh, calls involving black people and white officers to calls involving white people. Uh, this, this proposal came up in a debate earlier this week here on the Friendly Pioneer WDEV, and uh, it's created quite a bit of controversy in town. A lot of folks uh, really worried about the the, the implications of it, and uh, I wanted to... Uh, uh I, I wanted to do a couple things here. The uh, one thing is, I want to introduce another guest who just joined us on the phone. I do believe uh, Zuzana Davis is the uh, is the executive director of racial equity for the state of Vermont, a uh, position created by the legislature a couple of years ago, and uh, I believe she joined the state in uh, about July of uh, 2019. So has been on the job uh, not quite a year and a half. And uh, uh, Zuzana Davis, uh, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. And uh, I, uh, I I wanted to uh, ask uh, Chris uh, about a couple of sort of practical uh, implications of of the idea that he has proposed. One of which is, uh, I mean, for one thing, uh, Vermont has a, a very small number of police officers of color, uh, and so I don't know that you could even uh, assign one of them to every police department in the state. Uh, we have uh, then there are questions about who, sort of who's on duty, who's got a day off, uh, you know, what time of day is it? Uh, uh, are we always going to have a have a police officer of color to deploy to various things? Uh, you know, I, I, I was just envisioning a police officer being asked to respond to uh, a, you know an event out in the community, which might uh, might involve uh, people of multiple races. Uh, you know, uh, any number of uh, police calls can can ge- be generated, which uh, would involve both uh, white people and black people, citizens out in the community, and uh, and then what do you do? Uh, or there's a scenario where you're uh, a state trooper uh, by the side of a highway and uh, in a car, it's dark and a car uh, flies by at about 90 miles an hour. You think I've got to pursue this driver. Uh, you didn't quite get a good picture of the driver in your mind and you don't know. <laughs> and by the way, you're the only trooper on duty within 30 miles in either direction. And, uh, you know, if the, if the, if you think the driver is not of your race, do you then not pursue? Uh, I mean, all of these sort of very kind of basic issues that arise, would arise in daily law enforcement activities. Uh, Chris, do you have any thoughts here? Well, you brought up some good points, David. Um, I didn't, I wasn't never suggesting that this was the perfect scenario. It was a start of a conversation of which I believe we need to have more of to try to be proactive here moving forward as our state maybe will become more populated and populated and maybe even more diverse. Um, you know, that's why sitting down at a round table and talking these issues out may bring some, you know, better ideas to the table and some more solutions as to how we handle such things like you've just suggested. Um, let me, let me, let me bring in uh, Susanna Davis because, I mean, I wanted also to ask about, um, I, I think the standard is, and, and, and heaven knows, uh, in too many instances, the standard, we fall short of the standard in, in the United States of America. But it's inscribed in Vermont granite above the main entrance of the Supreme Court. It says equal equal justice under law. And uh, and I think the standard is that it really should not matter um, when you are having an interaction between a citizen and a police officer 
who's of what race. Do I am, am I on the right track there, uh, Susanna Davis? Well, so first, I just want to, um, again, thank you for having me and say it's nice to telephonically meet you, Chris, um, hoping for the day when, when we can all do these things in person again. Um, and, and, of course, I have to preface by saying um, I'm joining the conversation now, so I apologize if I say anything that's already been said earlier in the program. But, that's quite all right. You know, to, to your question about should it matter, I think that that really gets at some of the underlying issues. And I heard you talk about the logistical and the technical and tactical challenges of this. But really, I think this deserves that we take a step back first and look at the why. Why are we proposing something like this? And what problem are we intending to solve? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that Chris is being, is part of this discussion. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a start to a conversation because I think marginalized people have been talking about this for literal centuries in this country, um, but it is an important conversation for us to have, and, and, you know, we have to be thinking outside the box. Now, that said, yes, um, theoretically, on paper, our country's justice system is supposed to be race neutral, it's supposed to be blind to a number of um, personal factors or demographic identities so that people don't get disparate access to justice or to services. In practice, we know that's not the case. We know that people of color, members of the LGBTQIA plus community, people living with disabilities, women, young people, old people, people experiencing poverty, all of these groups experience less or poorer access to government services and justice on a daily basis. So yes, while theoretically it shouldn't matter, unfortunately in this country, it has been made to matter. And so when I think about this proposal, and of course, I've, I've never met Chris. I haven't directly heard these comments. And so I do have limited context. And for that reason, I'm going to take him at his word and, of course, assume good intentions here. Um, and so in really thinking about what's the nugget in this idea that links to equity work, you know, I do think that it's worth pointing out that oftentimes equity practitioners do acknowledge that representation matters. Right? It matters when you can see yourself represented, whether it's in law enforcement or leadership and decision-making or what have you. So, yes, by all means, let's have more people in the ranks of law enforcement who are from diverse backgrounds. And yet, I think that the, where, where this proposal starts to raise questions is in the idea that we're going to sort of segment our services and put people in a, in a bubble. Oh, you, you're brown. We'll let you deal with the brown people. And, you know, I'm, I'm simplifying it. I know, Chris, you, you've, you've done your best to, uh, to explain this. I think you, you acknowledge that you don't quite have the language to discuss these issues. And, of course, we're going to work on that. Um, but generally speaking, I, what I would agree with is that representation does matter. But I don't think this is quite the way to get there. I'm going to stop talking because I have a tendency to ramble. <laughs> that's, that's all right. Uh, I, I think, I mean, this idea of representation on, on police departments, obviously, uh, very important. And, and, uh, in, in part, I, I would think because, um, you know, a lot of what happens in a police department is, and in any workplace really is, is interaction between, uh, people who are of a common purpose. In this case, law enforcement. So you have, you know, a police officer uh, sitting at, uh, at a desk that's next to the desk of another police officer and they're interacting, 
uh, throughout the day, uh, you know, off and on or whatever. Um, and and so uh, having having some some uh, uh, exposure there to uh, to people from diverse backgrounds obviously uh, could help to uh, to uh, maybe bridge uh, some of the chasms that uh, that are that have shown up too often over time in the uh, interactions between uh, police and uh, and the and the citizenry out there uh, chris i'm wondering do you think that uh, do you think that 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 would that would be a start in the direction i mean would you would you be would you be happier if vermont made a concerted effort to, uh, to uh, recruit more people of color, let's say, to its police departments, um, and and then uh, kind of stop there. Or um, or do you really think that it, that that your idea wouldn't wouldn't be applied and wouldn't work unless there were policies in place saying that when we have a uh, an officer of color on duty and uh, and a call comes in involving people of color, we send that officer. Yeah. Uh, first, of all, I'd like to say. Susanna, I'd be happy to uh, <laughs> sit down with you sometime and and talk about this because uh, we're both. I'm a rambler as well, so we probably we'd be stuck <laughs> together there for a while, um, having con- having conversation. And I'm glad that you're uh, willing to take the time to to talk about this. Um, so, Dave, first first thing I want to say is I know that. Um, from speaking to a lieutenant there from the state police the other night that just recruiting in itself is becoming very difficult. Yeah. You can't imagine why, right? I mean, uh, uh, I think COVID maybe has accelerated people's tensions to the point where uh, it doesn't take much to to make an explosion these days. Um, And on top of that, just uh, this whole... You know, that started with George Floyd, and I just want to say this, um, that if I'd have been an innocent bystander there, um, I would have tried to intervene somehow at my own risk. Um, you know, I tell people on a harsh harsh side of speaking about this, I would have probably kicked a police officer in the head so, so hard his head would have rolled down the sidewalk like a soccer ball. Um, I was completely up... Uh, I was completely disturbed with what took place. And, and the fact that I believe the other two police officers, at least one of them was of my own minority, neither of those two stepped in to help out. Um, and I think fear from all perspectives is, is one of the things that's preventing us from meeting our goals here uh, and trying to make change to put people less at risk uh, and in, in the current times we're in, you know, bringing anybody to the table. Um, you know, I would encourage, encourage people that were protesting, if there's anybody out there that's looking for a career, um, you know, kind of, and I don't mean this in any derogatory way, but kind of have the guts to maybe step up and, and go to the recruiting center and step forward and think about a police career um, if you want to try to help out. You know, Interesting thought there. Uh, Mr. Viennes, of course, is running as an independent for uh, uh, one of the, the two House seats representing Waterbury and neighboring towns. And uh, uh, the incumbent uh, called uh, Mr. Viennes' remarks, quote, 
this is according to uh, Seven Days, uh, quote, some of the most culturally insensitive comments I have heard this year after a long conversation about racial justice in Vermont and, uh, quote, no less revolting, unquote, than the separate but equal doctrine used for years to justify the nation's painful uh, legacy of racial segregation. Mr. Stevens went on to say, there is a racist idea behind that that is part of the system, of part of the systemic racism that exists in this state and in this country. Um, we have on the air with us Mr. Viennes and uh, Susanna Davis, the uh, Executive Director of Racial Equity for the State of Vermont. Mr. Stevens was un- unable to join us this morning, you know, but I wanted to read his comments and ask uh, ask you, Ms. Davis, whether uh, you, you agree with the, the general gist of uh, uh, Representative Stevens' comments there. Well, so I read I read that article in seven days, and um, I, I do admit that the further I read, the worse it felt, uh, the, the the worse it tasted. I think some of the the way that it was presented, and you know, again, a lot of that has to do with terminology. A lot of that has to do with delivery. That's something we can work on. But what mm-hmm. I'm more interested in is the underlying notion, the underlying reason for the proposal, and what is the problem that it purports to address. And actually, before we went to break, uh, Chris had said something that I wanted to touch on because I think it's really key and it gets at that question. He mentioned the murder by the government on camera of George Floyd and talked about how at least one of the officers involved, or at least one of the officers who refused to get involved, was a person of color. And I think that really gets at my next point, which is that the proposal at issue here relies on three assumptions. The first assumption is that all people of color who would call for help have the same needs, interests, challenges, motivations, etc. The second assumption is that all law enforcement of color would automatically and categorically be responsive to and empathetic to those needs, challenges, problems, etc. And the third assumption is that white officers are somehow unable or unwilling to be equally responsible, responsive to have the same level of professionalism or, or service to the public. And I'm not, I'm not willing to accept any of those assumptions. And as we saw, the officer who actually did the murdering, um, he had just completed an implicit bias training and a de-escalation training soon prior. And the officer of color did nothing, which tells us that the mere presence of a person who is brown is not enough to reduce the risk of or to eliminate the risk of disparate policing. So what it tells us is that are we deploying officers of color to calls related to people of color because we assume that somehow they get each other and they can deal with each other and that it's going to turn out better? Is it because we want to reduce the disparities or because we want to reduce people's ability to claim that there was disparity based on race because we have now matched the person up with a person of a similar ethnicity? so, so all of that kind of swirls around into the underlying question, because really it leaves the system unchanged and instead just swaps out the actors. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that law, law enforcement officer of color hasn't internalized the culture and teachings that are, that are common in, in police departments across the country. It doesn't mean that, and, and I, I, appreciate, um, I appreciate what Chris said before break about, uh, I believe you put it as having the guts to become a police officer if you're displeased with with the way that policing is done in the country. I hope I've paraphrased that accurately. 
and you know the thing is it, it discounts the fact that it is hard to be a police officer in general and it's especially hard to be a police officer of color or a police officer living with disabilities or a police officer who's LGBTQIA+. Right? So being a marginalized person and then joining a, uh, a department that is rooted in a sort of paramilitaristic, slave-catching history is not, it's not going to look the same for me as it would for you who can get on the radio and say, I would have kicked the cop in the head. I don't think I would ever publicly say something like that because I live in America and it's not good for somebody who looks like me to, to say that kind of thing. So I think we're really getting at fundamental differences in the way that we are received, not just by society, but by law enforcement. The uh, Chris, let me let me ask you about that. Um, do, do you feel like I mean, is some of the thought here that uh, a sense that uh, a, an officer of color and a citizen of color who are having a, you know some kind of an encounter of the sort of the infinite variety of encounters that police have with citizens, um, are they going to uh, in, to use uh, Ms. Davis's phrase? Um, are they going to get each other, get one another? You know, I want to first say she she brings to the table a lot of good points. And I think that's what this whole uh, proposal was kind of surrounded around, was bringing to the table some conversation to maybe find some avenues that we can improve the problems that we're faced with today. Um, and the other thing I want to say is I have the utmost respect for our police officers, um, especially under today's conditions, you know. Um, yeah. I, I don't wonder there's a lot of police officers putting their badge on the table and saying, I'm done with this. Um, so, well, uh, you, you know what, Chris, I hate to do this, but <laughs> but we are about out of time on the Dave Graham Show. I, it's uh, it's unbelievable to me how fast this flies by sometimes, and uh, I apologize for just the sheer fact that we have to end this conversation now. Uh, Chris Viennes, uh thank you very much for joining me this morning. Susanna Davis, I thank you as well. I uh, wish we had another hour. We don't. Uh, and I wish you all, I wish you both well. We'll, uh, we'll uh, be back Monday with another edition of the Dave Graham Show. Have a good weekend, everybody.